all dream of things we cannot have. Tywin dreamed that his son would be a great knight, that his daughter would be a queen. He dreamed they would be so strong and brave and beautiful that no one would ever laugh at them. I am a knight, he told her, and Cersei is a queen. A tear rolled down her cheek. The woman had raised her hood again and turned her back to him. Jamie called after her, but already she was moving away, her skirt whispering lullabies as it brushed across the floor. Don't leave me, he wanted to call. But of course, she'd left them long ago. We quite obviously love the backstory of A Song of Ice and Fire and over the years, given the variety of topics we've chosen and the different approaches we've used. Every once in a while, a new realization dawns on us, and that's always fun. One really extra fun thing about character studies is that with our show, we're of course going to spend time on whatever setting that character is. We're going to try to develop as much as possible or explain the time that that character is living in. And that's part of the history that we get into even when we're studying a singular character. With the Blackfire Rebellion characters, for example, we put a lot of effort into showing you what that time period looked like in Westeros. The time during the Blackfire Rebellions, the setting, what the politics were like, what houses were powerful, etc. And without a proper view of that, without a proper view of the setting in general, it's easy to assume that something that might be the case in, say, 300 AC in the modern times would be the same in 200 AC, 100 years ago. And that's not always true. Certain houses have waned or waxed in their power compared to others. Well, some are about where they were. But the farther back we go, the less we tend to know. Hey, that rhymed. The more we have to extrapolate and triangulate, that rhymed too. This is what I've really come to love about these time periods is that when we dig deep on the smaller detail level, we find different things than when we dig deep on the high detail level. That's why I've really come to love these time periods that are only one or two generations prior to the start of A Song of Ice and Fire because it's the parents and grandparents of our most favorite characters, the ones we know best. And since it's their parents and grandparents, they have a direct impact on these characters. They're part of their upbringing, as Tyrion would say. We dance on the strings of those who came before us. They knew those characters as children. Or in this case, they were. this one was the mother of someone that we find very important in the story. I mean, this is where Jamie and Cersei and Robert and Stannis and Ned and Catelyn came from. These are the parents, their parents' generation. And consider as well the issue of scale. Focusing on a character like Joanna Lannister versus, say, focusing on the Great Empire of Dawn. Like, that's a giant difference, right? Both are awesome, but they are different kinds of awesome. Very different kinds of awesome. As, a, as different as you can be while still talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. With a single character, we get to look at an entirely different level of detail. Much smaller things about a human, about a person, rather than, well, a whole empire from 10,000 years ago, right? That's just a very different perspective. But in both cases, we get history. Instead of ancient history, we get recent history. And the extra fun thing about recent history is that it has a direct bearing, on again, on the characters that we know most and love most. Well, we don't all love those characters most, but we know them the best. I mean, this is the wife of Tywin we're talking about. Someone who had a huge impact on not just him, but King Aerys and Queen Rhaella. And the king and queen, of course, affect just about everybody. And better yet, she grew up with these people, knew them before they became what history remembers them as now. 
she knew them before they were famous. <laughs> She's the original Song of Ice and Fire hipster. So there's a lot of, for us to dig into here in that regard. But her personality, too. Joanna's character. A lot of enigma lies there as well because we don't know that much about her. So we get to theorize and play with possibilities, which is fun. We get to present alternate ideas, some of which are directly in contrast to each other, but that just speaks to how little we know of her as a person. Since it's the Game of Thrones, I like to use game metaphors. I think they work really well. There's one that fits really well here, in my opinion. It's the classic Stratego. It has simple rules as far as games go. Each piece is a soldier, ranked by number, and pieces can defeat any piece with a higher number. So the lowest number is the best, the one, and the worst is the nine. But there's another piece that doesn't have a number. It loses to the nine or the eight or the seven or the six, but it beats the one. In other words, it can't defeat even the lowliest soldier, but the leader of the army bows to it. And I think that's what we have with Joanna Lannister in a nutshell. Someone who had power over other powerful people, but maybe not over some of the others. She was someone, I think, who worked more behind the scenes. That's one of our theories anyway. And here's one quote that I think really pushes that idea and is part of why we feel this way. A Storm of Swords, Tyrion V. In those days, his father had been Aerys' hand, and many people said that Lord Tyrion Lannister ruled the Seven Kingdoms, but Lady Joanna ruled Lord Tywin. You know, our upbeat theme music doesn't exactly fit that sad opening quote about Joanna. But that is the idea, actually. That was on purpose. We can't have you all weeping on your way to work or at the gym or what have you. People will be coming up and asking you, what's wrong? Did you drop something on your foot? <laughs> no, it's just History of Westeros and a sad Joanna Lannister quote with some sad music that doesn't fit. No, we got your back on that. This episode was actually... Voted on by our Patreon supporters, so that is why we're doing it. Of course, we are also doing it because we wanted to do this episode. We create the ballot, and the patron voters choose which one gets made. Other episodes created via this patron process include Heresies of Septon Barth, Dark Sister, the Summer Hall episodes, good stuff like that. So if you want to get in on the action, go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Patreon link in the right sidebar. Or go straight to Patreon, patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Either way works. A couple of particular patrons to, to thank before we get into the material. First of all, thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, and Rider of Mazalakartho, the White Dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. And you can see new art here. Mazalakartho is now a juvenile dragon. Thanks to artist Azani for the wonderful drawing. We're real happy with this newest one. Follow us along. In a few months, there'll be a little older picture of Mazalakartho as he gets older and more fearsome. Also, thanks to Saeed Al-Fatah, Scourge of the Andals, and Commander of the Narrow Sea, and his fleet, the Key. What they've been up to lately. Pirate King, Saeed Al-Fatah, has gone to Dragonstone, found it occupied by House Valerian. A brief engagement followed, where the ship the Revenge was captured, and Saeed Al-Fatah retreated in good order, heading north to the Fingers. We'll keep an eye on the future adventures of our Pirate King. If you didn't know, we now have two Aziz vs. Chapter episodes available for patrons. You can get that for 
as little as $1 a month. That's two different about hour-long episodes. One of them is me discussing the Game of Thrones prologue. One of them is me is discussing the A Feast for Crows prologue. So like I said, about an hour each. Full video and audio on all of them. Just like a normal episode, but only available to donators and patrons. Also, we have our new show, Me, Ashea, and Aziz. <laughs> I'm Aziz. Me, Ashea, and Sean. <laughs> I'm in there twice. That's how that works. Our show is called Fandom Media. That's Fandom Media. One word. And we talk about shows like The Expanse and Black Sails and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Legion. And a lot more to come. Our show's only been around about three months. Something we do in the meantime to keep ourselves fresh in between writing these scripts. All right. Let's get started with the Joanna meta. As we like to do often, we start off by discussing a few of the things we did to research this episode, where we get our information, and some extra material maybe from George's perspective, stuff that's not necessarily in the text. First of all, some sourcing notes. There are some details we're using that were in the World of Ice and Fire sample on the Westerlands, but didn't make the final cut. And I believe... And we've asked around to get the opinions on some other people who are in the know. And it does seem to be that most of these details were cut just because of space. Not because George changed his mind or anything like that. But there is a small chance that he did change his mind on a few of these details. For the most part, these are very minor details. Stuff about Joanna's extended family. So we're not talking about, like, the Tyrion stuff or any birth stuff. That stuff is pretty much all solid. So I'm not even going to bother to list what those things are, because they would be major. But it bears mention. The first ever mention of Joanna is also the first time Tyrion has a conversation in the books ever. That's right. We're talking about A Game of Thrones, John 1. A Game of Thrones, John 1. What do you know about being a bastard? All dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. You are your mother's true-born son of Lannister. Am I? The dwarf replied sardonic. Do tell my lord father. My mother died birthing me, and he's never been sure. So hey, there it is right away. Tyrion Targaryen fodder. The first, the first chapter, few chapters, we're already getting into it. Now, right away, I'm going to say, the question of Tyrion's parentage is something that fascinates some and elicits eye rolls from others. That's just part of Joanna's mystique, though. No matter which camp you're in, this question comes up with her. We're not going to devote the whole episode to that, of course. We want to focus mostly on her, but there's no way to discuss Joanna without discussing Tyrion Targaryen. That's just how, how it is. So, we've included a good amount of analysis on it, but only the parts relevant to Joanna. We're not going to take a close look at Tyrion himself for those clues. Frankly, Joanna's impact on Tyrion was fairly minor because they, you know, she died when he was born. She, he grew up without her. He didn't have a mother. That certainly has an impact on him, but it's indirect. And this is not a Tyrion episode. So, we're going to focus on who she had a major impact on the most and on her. And of course, the most important person, other than herself, was Tywin, obviously. And as far as Tyrion goes, he grew up with Tywin, who had a lot of resentment towards Tyrion for various things that will come up during this episode. So, of course... That's particularly relevant. With Tyrion as well, her impact, as far as her death, was indirect. Of course, he didn't ever know her, but with Tywin, of course, it was huge. The indirect effect on Tyrion was also pretty major. It's a big deal to grow up without a mother. But the fact that it changed his own father's outlook towards him as well, well, it's kind of a double whammy. 
Now, Jamie and Cersei, of course, are very important as well, and they do have some memory of Joanna. And there's also lingering questions of their parentage as well. I think those questions are easier to settle than Tyrion's, and that's all in due time. We'll get to that. All fatherhood questions aside, though, Jamie, Cersei, and Tyrion were undoubtedly Joanna's children, and the twins felt her loss majorly, even though they don't remember her that well. They were pretty young when she died. Now, of all people, it's interesting that the Red Viper prompts a conversation with Tyrion that gives us some of our most important information about how large a figure Joanna was during her lifetime. It just so happened that many years passed around 273, Oberyn, Elia, and their mother, who we don't have a name for, unfortunately, she's the Princess of Dorne, they had arrived at Casterly Rock with rather unfortunate timing. A Storm of Swords, Tyrion V. A queer time to come visiting. His mother had died giving him birth, so the Martells would have found the rock deep in mourning. His father, especially. Lord Tywin seldom spoke of his wife, but Tyrion had heard his uncle's talk of the love between them. In those days, his father had been Ares' hand, and many people said that Lord Tywin Lannister ruled the Seven Kingdoms, but Lady Joanna ruled Lord Tywin. He was not the same after she died, imp, his uncle Gary told him once. The best part of him died with her. As she is dead long before the books begin, we have to work backwards. We have to use every investigational tool we have to find what there is to be found. One cannot truly see a black hole, but one way they can be detected is by observing that, hey, a bunch of stars are revolving around that nothingness? What's that nothingness? And so you, they figure it out that way. Jurassic Park notwithstanding, we're not going to see any dinosaurs, but the list of things science can learn from, say, a T-Rex footprint? Like what kind of shoes it was wearing. <laughs> That's a long list. Now, Jamie's dream aside, we don't really see Joanna either, and we're, you know, that's a dream vision that isn't necessarily her, but we can discern that she was extremely important. With regards to that astronomical analogy I just used, she had her own powerful gravitational pull. And for the gravitational analogy, we can also borrow from the Jurassic Park analogy. No one was big enough to fill her shoes when she went extinct. Going even further with analogies, no, none works better than a lion for describing Lannisters. So let's go back to her beginning when she was a cub, to her early years. It's not 100% certain, but it's extremely likely that she was born around the year 245-246. A year or two before her birth, in 244, Lord Gerald the Golden Lannister had died after ruling effectively for some 32 years. It's a very long reign. Lord Gerald had outlived his two eldest sons, even. Shows you how long he, he reigned. So his third son, that's Titos, had become Lord of Casterly Rock. This is Titos' father of Tywin. And Titos' only living brother was Jason, and that's the father of Joanna. So that's right, Joanna and Tywin were first cousins. The Lannisters of this time were not a small group. They're a, little, they're a lot smaller of a group this time if we're talking Lannisters of Castle Rock. Of course, there's Lannisters of Lannisport, and there's lots of them. But only Lannisters of Castle Rock, there's a bigger group in Joanna and Tywin's youth than there is now. So let's take a look at them. Let's take a look at the lions of all ages from that time. Jason Lannister, again, that's Joanna's father, was a busy man. He appears to have been competent at war, maybe even better. Maybe that's selling him short, though it was also how he died, which was only at age 31. Despite only being 31, he sired eight children. <laughs> His first 
was a bastard daughter with a serving girl, but he later got a noble girl, Alice Staxbeer, pregnant, and they were hurriedly married to avoid scandal. Well, I guess there was still a scandal because we all know about it. And this child was Damon Lannister, but Lady Alice died in childbirth. Interestingly, Damon seems to still be alive, but we haven't heard any about anything about him, so he hasn't done much if he is still alive. Jason was married again, quickly, apparently to avoid the chance of him fathering more bastards. He just couldn't keep it in the pants, apparently. A real Jason the Unworthy, this guy. <laughs> this second wife was Lady Marla Prester, and she was about twice his age. And again, remember, they were trying to hurry up and marry him to someone, so I guess the age wasn't a big deal. Despite being twice his age, though, she bore him three daughters and three sons. What a strange term, bore him. They, she bore those, child, those children for them. <laughs> and the first of those children was Joanna. If you recall Sir Stafford Lannister, that's Uncle Dolt, the one killed by Rickard Karstark when Rob's army snuck using the goat pass to get to Lannisport undetected and attacked the new army that he was gathering there. He didn't set scouts because or watchers because he didn't expect Rob's army to appear so deep in Lannister's territory. That is Joanna's oldest full brother. And we don't actually have names for the other four siblings of hers. Of prime importance is that Tywin and Joanna grew up near each other starting at a very early age. Tywin would be about three years older than her, and she'd have been very close to Jenna Lannister's age, Tywin's younger sister, if, assuming our earlier estimations are accurate, which they probably are. But they may not have seen each other as often as we may have been led to believe. It's said that they grew up together, and they probably did at some degree, but... One of those bits that we said was cut from the world of ice and fire suggested that Sir Jason lived at Feast Fires, which is his wife's house's seat, rather than at Casterly Rock, which means they were in separate locations, assuming that Joanna was over there with her father. But Feast Fires is not far, as you can see on the map here. It's just a little quick jaunt over to Casterly Rock. So they would have seen each other yeah, fairly frequently, I suppose, even if they didn't live together. And in addition to Joanna's four unnamed siblings, besides the ones we do have names for, there's Tywin's four siblings. So that's a lot of Lannisters of Casterly Rock. There's half-siblings, cousins, bastards, and all that stuff. So a bigger group. So wait a second. Joanna and Tywin related to each other, grew up together, fell in love. Sound familiar? Jamie and Cersei just carrying on family traditions, right? <laughs> There were also not a lot of older Lannisters there at the time, it would seem. A lot of younger ones, but in the elder generation, there's always the possibility of names that aren't on the family tree, cousins and things like that, but we don't, we don't know about them. So from what we do know, it doesn't seem like there was as many. Of course, her grandfather on the mother's side is House Prester. We don't have his name, of course. He may have still been around at Feast Fires. Same with her grandmother, Marla's mother. But that would be from an unknown house. But Gerald the Gold, we just got done saying how he died. And her grandmother was the famous Rohan Weber of Duncan Egg fame. And she had disappeared, maybe run off. I'm not sure what happened there, but about 15 years prior. That's a whole other mystery. So he didn't. So she never met her grandmother on that side. Now, unlike with the Targaryens, where they're maintaining bloodline purity for potentially magical reasons like the Dragon Lord stuff, Houses like the Lannisters clearly do this kind of thing also. Not brother-sister. Well, Damien Cersei did, obviously, but it's not a tradition for them. But the first cousin marriage thing, just like 
Ned Stark married his first cousin also. That's more about dynastic succession crises and preventing kind of internecine fighting. You don't want, you know, one branch of a house fighting the other branch of the house for succession. Just like they don't want that in the royal branches either. So the Targaryens have a couple of reasons for doing that. But the Lannisters have a reason too. So the Titos branch and the Jason branch were the ones that were out there at the time. So when Tywin and Joanna got married several years later, it was kind of like they were uniting the branches. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that there was some sort of pending conflict, that if, it, if they didn't get married, there was going to be some war. I'm just describing where that tradition comes from in the first place. It's a practice designed to prevent infighting. But was there more to it than that? I think there probably was. It wasn't just about preventing the intrigue, preventing the infighting, and preventing, you know, holding this tradition. It seems like there may have been a real romance going on. I think these two may have very much been in love. Besides just being first cousins, it was their first love. We know Tywin loved Joanna fiercely from many sources. We don't quite know who had the idea for them to get married, though. It may have been his idea. We should consider that for sure. He, it was a wise marriage, even though there seemed to have been love in it, and first cousin marriages seem gross to us, but we've explained why it makes some sense for them in that setting. But since it did happen while Lord Titos was alive, it's possible that it was his idea. You never know. I mean, he was a weakling, but it didn't mean he didn't have the occasional good idea. And he may have wanted them to get married because he noticed that they were in love. That's the kind of thing he would do, I think. He cared about love. He really cared about himself being loved. But he might have been enthused by the idea of Tywin and Joanna having a thing for each other. Especially because Tywin seems to have been kind of a humorless guy. Seems to have been. He is a humorless guy. <laughs> so maybe Titos recognized that in his son and thought, hey, this is the one woman that he really cares for. It'll be good if they're together. Not sure. In any case, if that did happen... Maybe that would be one of the very few things Tywin would be thankful to his father for. Because, you know, we get the impression Tywin is very embarrassed by his father. Maybe this is one of the few good things that happened. It was probably a rare thing. Perhaps, though, it was Joanna's idea. That's a worthy consideration, right? It's not exactly common for women to be the movers and shakers in Westeros with these kind of things. But it isn't uncommon either. Joanna may have been maybe a convention breaker type. We don't hear that about her. And generally, the women who go outside of the the predefined roles for them in Westeros get talked about a lot. You know, it's like the, the, that old story of the evil stepmother, the wicked stepmother trope, that kind of thing. We hear about the women bathing in blood to extend their lifespan, things like that. These kind of common rumors told about women of power. But these rumors really don't exist about Joanna, which is part of why I think that she was a behind-the-scenes powerful person, not a, you know, demanding things in open court, like not the kind of person that would make her presence felt through vocal authority. Someone who kind of works behind the scenes instead. That's, that's really what I get the impression of. So she maybe worked some things behind the scenes with regard to this marriage. It's entirely possible. In other words, what a girl can't do openly, perhaps she can do through an intermediary. Maybe she got one of her brothers or her other siblings, or one of Tywin's brothers, to bring it up. And there's a lot of possibilities there. Someone who talks to Titos, someone who sells the idea, all of a sudden, you know, hey, all of a sudden Titos is talking about Joanna and Tywin getting married. And no one knows that Joanna was really the one who got it all started. That kind of thing is always possible. But we should also consider that there were competitors. Tywin is going to be the Lord of Cashley Rock eventually, and he's a powerful guy. He's obviously capable. He, people knew right away that he was going to go far. He was very capable, very strong. Maybe not the 
easiest guy to be around. Even back then, even with Joanna in his life, people talked about how Tywin was the hard guy to get along with. He was hard to love, and even harder after Joanna died. But despite that, that's not going to slow some people down. Some people are going to be like, I don't care. I want to be the Lady of Casterly Rock. Or some men are going to be like, I want my daughter to be the Lady of Casterly Rock. I don't care what she thinks. We all know that's the attitude of some Westerosi lords. They look at power before they care about these personal feelings or about what it's going to do to their family. Tywin himself falls into that category, as we'll see later with his kind of ridiculous blind spot with regards to Ares. But Joanna had the advantage, if there were other suitors, she had the trump card, which is that Tywin actually really liked her. <laughs> so there's not much aware, much they could do about that. And she was also a Lannister. You know, she, she's she got that, that Lannister blood, you know, Tywin being a pride guy. That's going to matter. So growing up with him, she kind of has the inside track in that regard. To be fair, even though they grew up together, these were the very early years, right? During their teens... There were large gaps of time where they couldn't have seen each other. We'll, we'll be seeing that as we go along this timeline that they were apart. She'd be at Cash of the Rock, he'd be at court being the hand. A lot of times like that, where they weren't together. There are some of these times where it's almost assured, like where Tywin's mother, Lady of Cash of the Rock, died in 255, where they would have had to be together because they would have gone to this funeral. That would have been something that all the Lannisters attended. No Lannister is going to miss the Lady of Casterly Rock's funeral, right? That's just a huge deal. Unless they're off at war or something. Like, it's about the only thing that they would stop them. So those are the timelines we're going to focus on. When we, throughout this episode, when we make guesses, our strongest guesses are going to come when the times when we're pretty sure that Tywin and Joanna were in the same location because of these major events, like a tournament or a funeral or a wedding. Now, Tywin was sent to court pretty early on to be cupbearer to Aegon V, where he befriended the king's grandson the future Mad King Ares, who was neither mad nor a king back then. His father was depressed at this time. When he sent Tywin to court, he was sad because his wife had died. As it turns out, his wife died giving birth to Jerrion, Tywin's youngest brother. Sounds familiar, right? Lots of death and childbirth here. That's just the way it was. And when Tywin went to court, he befriended Ares, because again, Ares wasn't crazy yet. Maybe Ares started to get another step towards crazy around 259, because that's when Summerhall happened. Ares might have come back from Summerhall a changed man. Tywin and Ares' relationship may have changed a little bit because maybe Ares was a little different. But maybe not. Maybe that. Maybe those changes happen later. For more on that, check out our Summerhall episodes. We go into that quite a bit. Ares would have also been changed by the fact that he was now a father. Rhaegar was born during Summerhall. It was a bittersweet kind of moment there. And Joanna, not too long after, joined them all at court as lady-in-waiting to the future Queen Rhaella. Now, next in line after Summerhall. But first of all, note the parallel to Jamie and Cersei. Cersei was sent to court, and then she tried to manipulate things to get Jamie into the King's Guard so they could be together again. That actually worked, except it didn't, because then she got sent back <laughs> to the Casterly Rock after Jamie got sent to court. So it didn't work out. But the point is that they were able to manipulate things behind the scenes. And maybe that's what happened here? Maybe Tywin made a few moves to get Joanna brought in as lady-in-waiting for Rayella. I mean, he was close with Ares back then. It's entirely possible. Or maybe Joanna pulled those strings to say, hey, get me in there as lady-in-waiting to Rayella. I can be at court. We can be together, we can do stuff there, we can manipulate things, I can work my magic. A lot of possibilities. We Again, we're throwing out a lot of ideas for Joanna because we're not grounded. We have to pick from what options we have, which is a lot of different options. We can't narrow it down too much. 
Now, don't take this notion lightly, by the way. Not the idea that Tywin maneuvered behind the scenes. It's just, this is an ordinary idea. This is normal. Tywin has done that kind of thing all the time. He was that kind of lion. <laughs> but we're not concerned with that. We know that about Tywin. We want to know if Joanna was that kind of lion. Throughout this episode, we will show you ample, circumstantial, to be fair, but still ample evidence that she was indeed that kind of lion. Not only are we confident that she made moves of her own, but the quote about her ruling Tywin is not to be taken lightly. Now, Catelyn had a lot of sway over Ned and important life choices that they made together, and Robert simply wouldn't stand up to Cersei on, well, a lot of things, most things, really. Queen Alysanne famously had a huge influence on policy and on her husband in general, that's the old King Jaehaerys I. And on the other hand, there are many examples of passive ladies, who women who have only had very indirect impacts on the decisions and actions of their lordly husbands or royal husbands, but nothing, and I mean pretty much nothing at all, suggests that Joanna was that kind. We'll show you plenty that suggests the opposite, the kind of behind-the-scenes worker. That's what the impression is that we get. The point I've seen made out in the fandom is that Joanna must have been beautiful because Ares and Tywin were both in love with her. That's not an unreasonable guess, but it's not enough to cover the basis here. And we don't even hear about it like we do say she, Ares, sea star, or her own daughter, Cersei. And that's part of a compelling mystery here. For her to have such an impact on such powerful people, I don't think it can be beauty alone. I mean, Ares probably could have any woman he wanted, and he usually did. But he kept wanting to come back to Joanna. There's these rumors wouldn't die. It came at very separate points along the timeline. So in other words, this scenario is ripe for some reading between the lines, something we just love to do. It's something we've already done quite a bit in this episode, and we're just getting started. We're told repeatedly and thoroughly that Joanna held more sway over Tywin than anyone else. And she inspired emotions and reactions in him that no one else could. So one idea we have is to look at Tywin's behavior before her death and compare it to how he behaved after. It might give us some clues to how she impacted him, what kind of general things she did as far as what her personality meant in his life and how it moved him or what, what it inspired him, etc. It's going to be a theme throughout this episode. We're going to start off in that vein with another popular idea from the fandom, which is that she must have been someone to be proud of because Tywin was a proud man and easily embarrassed and things like that. He cared so much about that sort of thing. But still, that's not very specific. What exactly would he be proud of? Just that she was she carried herself well? Was she smart? I'm guessing she was. If she wasn't smart or if she was unintelligent, what exactly are we talking about? Why would Tywin have been so into her in the first place? And how could she be the type to you know, manipulate him or, or take charge of him at home if she's, you know, not very bright. I, I just doesn't really, that doesn't really compute for me. So I would guess that she was intelligent, perhaps very intelligent. Certainly not, not intelligent. And considering the emphasis that Westerosi culture places on women and women doing women's work and being courteous and all that, the, the general kind of boxes that they're put into, I imagine that she was composed, gracious, probably authoritative. She probably carried a lot of, carried herself well. But these are just guesses. And we got to go farther than that. I mean, those are easy guesses, right? These are basic personality traits. But what about like, was she 
the kind of person that was like the fuel to his fire, like making him more intense? Or was she kind of the balance, the yin to his yang? Like, he's cruel, she's kind, and they, between they meet in the middle? I don't know. I mean, Tywin was cruel while she was alive, and Tywin was cruel after. So, uh, I don't know, maybe so it might even make me think like she was more towards his end of things. Like, she didn't mind the cruelty. Maybe she wasn't all about it, but she, like Tywin, realized it had its place in terms of establishing rule, establishing fear. Likewise, he was proud while she was alive and proud after. So, clearly neither of those characteristics of his died with her. But she may have had a role in why he became that way in the first place, right? They knew each other as kids. And if he was into her from a very early age, he might try to, you know, be the kind of man that she wanted. Uh, and maybe some vice versa, too. Maybe she tried to be the kind of woman that Tywin would have been proud of. The kind of things young people do to, to please others. But after all, he did love her and... Probably did from a very early age because they were around each other so much as kids. And the parts of himself and the actions that he took that she responded to positively. You know, I think these things, they kind of build on each other. So he was probably a better person with her around because at least he had some love in his life. And I think for most people, it's better to have that in your life than not. It doesn't necessarily make you a better person, but I think usually it does. But, on the other hand, a recurring theme in A Song of Ice and Fire is that the things we love destroy us. It's been said straight up. And usually, the quote, thing we love is a person. In Tywin's case, the thing born of the thing he loved destroyed him. With a crossbow. If Tywin had actually loved Tyrion, he probably wouldn't have destroyed him, though. Eh? Destroyed by loving, destroyed by not loving. Casterly rock in a hard place. But the list goes on. Was Joanna manipulative? Was she some sort of schemer? Did she like bad puns? Probably not. Did she have any kind of Tywin's capacity for cruelty or did she just kind of go along with it? What did she think of Tytos and how he embarrassed House Lannister? Was she kind of on Tywin's side? Was she ashamed of him? Did she look down on him? Or did she kind of feel sorry for him? Or maybe somewhere in the middle? All these things are possible. It's also just compelling to think that she was in agreement with Tywin on some major things. But what? And if she held such sway over him, which she very clearly seems to have, it doesn't really make sense to assume that she agreed with him on everything, right? If she held sway over him, that means she changed his mind on some things. If, he, if she's just going along with everything he wants to do, then where is the sway exactly? Where exactly does this idea come from? She's changing his mind on things. She's making calls. That's got to be what it is. So... It's not simple, but it is simple. The simple part is that we know she had power. The non-simple part is we don't exactly know in which areas, except for some examples. We do have some examples. But of course, as we said earlier, they weren't together a lot of times. When, when she's at Cassidy Rock and he's at court, I mean, how much influence can she have on him when they're that far apart? Some, they're going to exchange letters, but it's not day to day. And vice versa, too. He's going to send her letters. They're going to talk about what's going on and give each other advice here and there. But... While she's by herself versus while she's with him, she may have had a lot of value as an advisor. That may have been why he respected and loved her so much, because she wasn't just a woman that he was in love with, but she was also really just smart and helpful in setting policy and running Casterly Rock and doing just a good job. Like, he, Tywin relied on Kevin for a lot of things. When Joanna was alive, he may have relied on her for a lot of things, too. 
And it bears mentioning that through all this, that whatever trade she possessed that appealed to Tywin as an adult, they all pale in comparison to their proximity as children. Remember, I, I'm going to drive this point home really hard because you, you just can't overemphasize what, how much it matters, the friendships and loves that you have as a child and what that becomes as an adult. You really, we really hang on to these things, the things that happened to us as a child. That's why, for example, Ned and Robert were, were together as kids. That's why these noble children are put together in fostering situations. It's so that they become friends. Because friends are less likely to get into civil wars with each other later or to start wars with each other. That's part of it. Make them friends and they won't fight later. As Eamon said to John, you gotta kill the boy. Tywin, on the other hand, he didn't seem to have anyone needing him to, to do that. He just kind of killed the boy on his own, and he did it at an early age. At that same early age that Joanna and him were falling in love. Tywin is said to have been really hard to love. A really hard man from a really early age, really hard to love. Even Kevin was dutiful, but did he really love Tywin? In a sense, I guess, but that's the extreme. Joanna, though, we're told did. Eh... How much of that is talk? <laughs> Maybe she really did, but if she did, it was because, I think, because of that proximity as children. Falling in love with him as an adult, it's hard to imagine. The dream version of her tells us, A feast for crows, Jamie Seven. He could never abide being laughed at. That was the thing he hated most. So I've wondered about that a lot. Most of what we hear focuses on how he felt. Not her. We hear that Tywin really loved her. Tywin really loved her. And the assumption is that they loved each other. Most of the quotes don't refer to that. Though some of them do. They do kind of say them and not just him. If I was pinned down on the question, and hey, we're doing an episode here. So I am pinned down on the question. I think she probably did love him. But there's probably some caveats. And if not for the childhood connection, I really kind of doubt it. Even Jenna, who really had strong reasons to love Tywin because of how much he stood up for her when they were kids, doesn't really express love when he's when she's talking to Jamie about it. She just expresses respect, which is what Tywin wanted more than love. But we see that there are problems with that. And that's a really important factor in all this. We've been describing these adult qualities of Joanna's, even though we're still early in the timeline. And we're not talking about so much as her early adult and child qualities. And that is when Tywin fell in love with her, and presumably vice versa. So we needn't look any farther than to discuss bonds between children than Jamie and Cersei, <laughs> Joanna's own children. And maybe that's where they got the idea in the first place, meaning jo Jamie and Cersei. Maybe they bore constant witness to the affection of their parents. Now that's normal, parents being affectionate to each other. Why would that lead to incest? Because they were first cousins. You may have seen your parents growing up be affectionate to each other, and that may have had a positive impact on you and how you interact with other people. But Jamie and Cersei, when they saw this, those were not just their parents, those were first cousins. It's To us, it sounds like a big jump to go from first cousins to brother and sister, but would that be true if you were four? Would you make that distinction? You might, because your parents were like, don't do that. But if not, I don't know. I don't know. Mom and dad both grew up there, too. That's the same environment. That's Casterly Rock. And they all look alike. They're all Lannisters with golden hair and green eyes. This is the environment they grew up in where these people get together and hook up. I don't know. I'm not trying to defend that behavior because I'm as grossed out by it as anyone. But it is, from their perspective, it's not so weird. 
And for non-family examples, like I said, Ned and Robert. Perfect example. Heirs of major houses being paired up to become friends is really common. And it pays the dividends in the long run with peace and trade. So all that put together, it's interesting that this generation of Lannisters didn't do a lot of fostering outside the Westerlands. We, Ned and Robert, North and Stormlands. Big differences in these locations. We've got Boltons in the Vale and we've got people moving vast distances to do their fostering. But these Lannister generations, they all kind of kept it in ho at home, which may have added even more to, you know, what fed Jamie and Cersei's childhood ideas. So anyway, as we go through this, rather than asking this question at the end, I want you to think about this during the episode. Ask yourself as... I'm going through all this as your own concept of Joanna is formed, or if you already had one, if it changes during this episode, think about what she would do in these various scenarios. There's so many questions we had to ask without knowing the answer, but it's fun to think about the questions even without knowing the answer. It's a lot of room to play around here. It's really fun. So if you have your own ideas, if you have your own thoughts, leave us comments here if you're watching on YouTube or email us at westeroshistory at gmail.com if you're listening on podcast with your thoughts on Joanna. Now from the rock to the red keep. Remember what we just said about those bonds formed while young? Again, that's why this time period is so crucial. Joanna and Tywin formed their bond at the rock, whatever it happened to be, but now they have a chance to form bonds with key figures at court. Talk about long-term potential. Forming those bonds within your own family and around neighboring houses is one thing, but now they're doing it at the heart of everything, at court, where there's people from every region, and of course, the king and queen, and the other most powerful members of the realm all in one place. And as the Lannisters can attest, these bonds don't always work out so well in the end. Tywin and Ares started out great because of that early childhood bond, but as we know, it all went... Well, it went crazy. Well, Ares went crazy. <laughs> the tension grew steadily over the years. It wasn't just something that all of a sudden the bottom fell out and Ares and Tywin were at each other's throats. It was a very gradual, slow, downgrading process. They went from friends to distant friends to not friends to eh, co-workers who don't get along very well to... It just went worse. It just keep going with those descriptions. It just got worse over time. And along with... All those other open questions regarding how Joanna might have felt about certain events or certain people. We have this huge variety of people at court now for her to be to interact with and have opinions on. Now we can't guess at most of them, but we'll focus on the important ones. And that's where a lot of the fun is. And as we ask these questions about Joanna, there's a really big one. We we were we asked the question about Tywin and how she really felt about Tywin, and, and we're pretty sure we got a handle on that. But there's a bigger question that's almost as important that's a lot harder to answer. How did Joanna Lannister feel about Aerys Targaryen? And part of the reason it's not simple is because the answer may have changed over time. She may have felt differently about Aerys when they were all young versus later. In fact, she almost certainly did because he changed so much. And Tywin, certainly, if he's any guide, we saw how that situation downgraded over time. Why wouldn't it be at least a little similar for Joanna? Tywin liked Aerys at first. Maybe Joanna did too. Maybe that's where some of these rumors came from. In any case... The lion may not care what the sheep thinks, but it has to care about what the dragon thinks. So what did the lion think of the dragon? This is the point in the episode where this question and a few similar related questions matter the most because this is the beginning of their interactions. And those first impressions will probably carry over for a long time, even though Ares 
changed so much. How would she react to Ares coming onto her when they were both young, for example? It might be a lot different than if he'd happened to do it much later. When she first came to court, she wasn't married to Tywin yet, so she might have been a little more open to the idea. She may have even been the one to start it. She may have pushed it herself. Outside chance. I'm guessing it was Ares, but it's definitely on the table as a possibility. After she got married to Tywin, it's a lot more likely that she's like, no, I'm married. What are you doing? But even that is not a sure thing. So let's keep it going. Maybe she was into the notion while he was sane, for example. Like, that's very believable because we're told Ares was charming. and I mean, he was going to be the king. So, and again, he wasn't crazy. So there's a lot probably to like there. I mean, what we know about Ares now, everyone thinks about the long fingernails and the crazy unkempt hair and the beard out of control and burning people to death. It's really hard to separate that image of Ares from, you know, 20-year-old Ares, who was a pretty decent guy. And if she wasn't really in love with Tywin, if she was like, well, Tywin's into me and I kind of like him and, you know, we're, I don't want to say no and... She wanted to be Lady of Casterly Rock, and her love was more of the dutiful kind. We hear that a lot in Westeros of noble marriages where, one, they're not that into each other, but they do their duty, right? That's a pretty common thing. Less common, one of them is really into the other, and, you know, it's there's it works okay. And then the third kind where they hate each other, but they still kind of keep up appearances. <laughs> and then I guess there's 3A where they hate each other and don't even keep up appearances. I guess that's kind of like Robert and Cersei. <laughs> but if she genuinely liked Ares, it's maybe an uncomfortable idea. But if she, if she did like him, she would have kept it secret too, right? She wouldn't have been like hoping Tywin found out. Especially if she liked them both. She liked Tywin and cared what he thought, but also liked Ares. She would have kept it on the down low. None of this should be hard to believe, really, either of these things. Tywin was hard to love, as we said. So maybe she was like, yeah, he's my going to be my husband. Or later, when she was his husband, or she, she was his wife. Uh, you know, maybe she didn't, wasn't that into it and wanted to go get involved in, with someone else. It's, it's possible. I mean, is it really that hard to imagine being turned off by Tywin? <laughs> So the argument about growing up together kind of cuts both ways because, yeah, maybe she fell for Tywin growing up, but she maybe saw the worst of him growing up too, and maybe she didn't like that. It's just, it's very difficult to, to, to get at some of these things. And it cut, like I said, it cuts both ways. If, if Joanna could fall for Tywin because they were both young, then why not Ares? She met Ares when she was like 15, and they weren't established. Neither of them were established. Tywin wasn't like this badass administrator who was good in war and, and making decisions and ruling the realm. That was not established yet, just as much as Ares's madness was not established yet. At that point, they were just powerful, younger members of really powerful houses, really great houses. So she may have even been the initiator on either of these. We, we talked about the possibility that she was the one that started the flirtation with Tywin. It's also possible with Ares. Like I said, I don't, I don't think that's the more likely one. I think it's way less likely, but it's definitely possible. But while considering it, you got to think of these other factors, too. It gets really complicated with all these rumors and conjecture clouding the picture, but also giving us tantalizing possibilities. There were multiple times when they could have or did have a relationship, and these need to be considered separately and together because of the differences along the timeline and because of how Ares changed so much over time. The crueler and nastier and less appealing Ares gets over time, the less likely Joanna's going to want to have anything to do with him. But if they had already had something established in the past, it'd be harder to, to you know, cut the cord. 
and this is even more complicated because we don't know when Tywin and Joanna even really got together in the first place. We assume it was back at Cashley Rock. They fell in love as kids. But they got married much later. Let's dial it back for a minute. Right now it's 2.59. We're just after Summerhall. I've had a lot to say about this interim period. But let's get back to where the timeline is and be a little more specific with when things are happening. The world of ice and fire. The scurrilous rumor that Joanna Lannister gave up her maidenhead to Prince Ares the night of his father's coronation and enjoyed a brief reign as his paramour after he ascended the Iron Throne can safely be discounted. As Pycelle insists in his letters, Tywin Lannister would scarce have taken his cousin to wife if that had been true, for he was ever a proud man and not one accustomed to feasting upon another man's leavings. Pycelle is a Tywin fanboy. It is known. I don't have to give you any examples of that. You already know that. His testimony is not to be ignored here, mind you, but neither is his bias. In this case, He's not actually offering first-hand knowledge. He's saying, I know that didn't happen. He's saying Tywin is not the person that would do that. That's not evidence. That's not even hearsay. That's just his take on what Tywin would or wouldn't do, which is the worst kind of take. <laughs> but it doesn't mean he's wrong. <laughs> it, it could be true. Uh, either way, these rumors did probably persist for a while. They seem to. And that's probably why they appeared in the World Book, which was written by a maester many years later. Making it curious that... Any mention of a Joanna Ares rumor would be even concluded in the first place, even though the rumor is dismissed. I just don't know why they would bring it up at all. So I think that's a little peculiar. The fact that there's Joanna Ares stuff in the world of Ice and Fire at all is a little odd to me. More on that later. In any case, because Pycelle is so biased, the rumor cannot, as it says in the quote, be safely discounted. We can't discount that rumor, even though Pycelle wants us to. It's a very real possibility that Ares... And Joanna had a fling. Or something more than a fling. The Targaryen dynasty over the years featured quite a few men who were charming and slept around constantly. And quite a few who were known for taking women by force. Ares was both. To be fair, he was probably not the latter until later in life, but we don't even know that for sure. Early on, he seemed to more like the convincing type, like charmer type. But later, he was the bathe her and bring her to me type, I guess. But the line is blurry as to when began and the other started. And Ares didn't really like to hear no. Again, I don't want to make it sound like he definitely raped Joanna. I don't even think it's terribly likely, but it's another thing that's possible. Especially because that is probably how Daenerys was conceived. The, the rape of her own mother that Jaime overheard is probably when she was conceived because she left her Dragonstone the next day and gave birth there. So again, though, I do lean against Ares being that type at this point in the timeline, but again, it's we gotta consider it. On the same time, though, it does explain to us how this rumor may have gotten started. Jamie Kingsguard overhears this. Maybe that's how we hear about it, through his POV. But some other Kingsguard... Or some other servant could have been the one to see Joanna and Ares together. I don't mean together like sleeping together. I mean like walking down the hall together, going into a room together. That doesn't mean something happened in that room, but you can see where the rumor would come from just really easily. It could take very little to start a big rumor that isn't even close to true. We know that happens. But it shows us where the rumor may have come from in the first place. If it's false, there's a million ways it could have gotten started. People love to talk. Servants love to gossip. Something, you know, could have been a, just a 
quick flirtatious moment in public that people read a lot into. But something real could have happened. A servant could have actually witnessed something really happening. Or a Kingsguard, like Jamie. Hmm, not Jamie specifically, but a different Kingsguard. Now, it would be interesting to know what rumors existed at the time versus which ones came up later. Because we're, we're talking about maesters who weren't even there. And talking about court gossipers who love to exaggerate and trying to blend all this together and find truth somehow in there. Uh, so we don't want to go too far with it. Whatever gossip was happening at the time almost certainly took a backseat to the Nine Petty Kings who were becoming quite newsworthy. Around this time, they had become active and were turning their attention towards Westeros, which made them a threat. First of all, they seized Tyrosh, and that was news. And when King Aegon V, Egg, died, they made their move towards the Iron Throne, backing the claim of Maelys the Monstrous. They began with the Stepstones. Ares, Tywin, and several others left court to go fight in this war and met the Nine Penny Kings in battle by 260. It's East versus West. Well, of course, if you're from the West like Tywin, everything is East versus West because there isn't anything to the West. So even if uh, Joanna and... Ares had been messing around at this point. Remember Tywin and Joanna aren't married yet. They would have stopped because now Ares is left to go to war. And of course, so did Tywin. Now, like the secret Targaryen theories, we're not talking about the whole War of Nine Penny Kings here. It's way afield. It's not like Joanna fought in that war. But we're trying to focus on what she was doing during that war, whether she was a prideful woman uh, whether they were political considerations or genuine concern, she would have a lot to consider with regard to this war. She'd care about her family. She would want to know that Tywin was safe, I guess. Maybe she cared about Ares, too. Maybe some of her other cousins and siblings were there. She may have cared about some of her extended friends. But certainly her family, it's pretty likely she cared about the most. So from her perspective, maybe this was like the Golden Lions versus the Golden Company. Roughly 15 now, Joanna, of course, remained at court with Princess Riella, with the king... And presumably Queen Shara, since she apparently survived Summer Hall as well. With so many of the key male figures gone, court would be a different place. Different friendships and connections would form as new faces took up temporary positions while the regulars were off at war. Tension would be present at all times. Everyone had loved ones, and the enemy was said to have, wait, two heads? Yeah, Melee the Monstrous, there you go, that's... Probably kind of terrifying to hear from a distance or to face firsthand. Anyway, the notorious Blackfire clan of usurpers with the renowned and seasoned Golden Company all pictured there, all in her mind, everyone else's minds. That's a little intimidating. Joanna may have been influenced by this talk or added to it or ignored it, but she surely heard it and could not have failed to notice a few things on her own. Tywin and Ares, for example, had no war experience. Perhaps this is an unsettling thought for her. But we have no cause to label her as the worrisome type. She was young, and perhaps like so many other young noble ladies, believed the men of her family to be as invincible as they themselves did. You know, there's the Knights of Summer, and there's the Ladies of Summer, too. Perhaps she considered that, to be sure, a three-headed dragon is better than a two-headed one. Eh? <laughs> that golden lions are more fearsome and noble than golden skulls. You know, these kind of things. Whatever she needs to tell herself. Or that Westeros had never been invaded on this scale before, successfully. At least not without dragons. Real dragons. So there's a lot for her to take heart in. Fears of losing the war were probably small, in other words. But, again, fears for her loved ones. That's another matter altogether, right? Her father 
in fact, led the Westerlands component of the army. And this was not a small contribution from the West. 11,000 men were led by Sir Jason. Nonetheless, worried or not, Joanna would be aware that House Lannister had bad luck with the last Blackfyre Rebellion and its cousin, the Peak Uprising, not long before. Sir Tywald Lannister was heir to Casterly Rock and elder brother to Tytos, and he died in the storming of Starpike. Joanna would have heard of her uncle, though he died well before she was born. She would have also heard of his twin brother, Sir Tion, who died in the fourth Blackfyre Rebellion four years after the Peak Uprising. Recall that this was barely a rebellion at all, and only about a hundred loyalists died in that decisive and only battle that we know of, really. But Sir Tion was one of those a hundred casualties. So of her father's generation, which was four brothers, two had already been killed in rebellions, and this one was much larger and more dangerous. So it would be reasonable for Joanna to be concerned for her father and Tywin and Ares. I wonder who she worried for the most. Later in the year, she would receive word that Lord Ormond Baratheon, who had married Princess Rhaella's aunt, Princess Rhaelle, had been killed by none other than Maelys himself, the two-headed wonder. It's easy to get confused here. So again, Princess Rhaella is the wife of Ares, and, you know, later mother to Daenerys, Rhaegar, and Viserys. Princess Rhaelle is daughter of Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg, and grandmother of Robert, Stannis, and Renly. Rhaelle is aunt to Rhaella. Joanna, as lady-in-waiting to Rhaella, would grieve along with the others at court when they got this news. And they, in turn, would grieve for her because news then arrived, or also arrived, rather, that her father, Sir Jason Lannister, had also died in the war on the island of Bloodstone. So, a rebellion acclaimed another of the sons of Gerald the Golden. That's three of four. Now, we don't know which of these deaths came first. Maybe Jason died before Ormond, but either way... The wait for more news must have been tough. It's a very stressful thing to imagine, just sitting around waiting for who died next. A lot of loved ones are still at war, so that just sounds really stressful. Stafford, you know, he was not old enough to be a knight at that point, but he may have gone. He may have been a squire. Certainly, uh, that's what happened with Tygett, which is Tywin's youngest brother, or youngest brother who was at the war. Jerrion, of course, was the actual youngest brother. Uh, Joanna's half-brother, Damon, was certainly old enough to be there, and he may have been, but we don't know whether he was or whether she, she worried about him or not, but it seems likely. And if she hadn't already gotten very close to the other ladies-in-waiting before this, this may have encouraged that even more. Nothing like adversity shared with others to bond, right? That's, that's just uh, kind of how it goes. And it's too bad we don't know who these ladies-in-waiting were, except for the Princess of Dorne, Elia and Oberyn, and Doran's mother was one of them. And that is going to come up big later. But there may have been other connections that she made during this time, other friendships, political alliances might have come from this later, as the one with the Princess of Dorne certainly did. It'd be great to know more about those. But back to the war. As far as this war goes, it wasn't very long. Barrison the Bold slew Maelys in battle, and just like that, the Nine Penny Kings, well, Eight Penny Kings at that point had no more claim to Westeros, so they kind of just became Essos's problem again. They weren't done, but Westeros wasn't concerned anymore. Tywin and Ares returned in triumph with war experience, alongside several other notables. Tywin was now a knight. Kevin, 
And Tygett earned a claim. Kevin also became a knight. Tygett wasn't quite old enough yet, but he did the deeds that would have been worthy of a knight. He just wasn't old enough yet. So that's all good for them. Now one wonders how Joanna takes a look at all this. She sees Tywin's side of the family coming back all triumphant, while her side of the family took the major loss. Sir Jason, remember, was only 31. And we don't know if Joanna's mother was still alive at this time. Remember, she was a lot older than Jason. But Jason was only 31. So she could have still been around. But if she wasn't, then that means Joanna had no parents by the time she was 15. And it's likely that all the Lannisters went to the Rock after this for Sir Jason's burial, right? That's, he was a major factor. He would have a big state funeral. He died a war hero. It would have been a somber time, but at least Joanna and Tywin could have been together for a while, you know, maybe with, without a lot of other people getting in their way. I don't know. Hard to say. But it's a mourning period, and after enough time had passed, they would have gone back to court, maybe together. But there was more family business to take care of, so Tywin may not have gone back right away, because this is around the same time that he went on campaign. Maybe it was returning to the Rock and seeing what was going on, realizing how sorry the state of affairs was in the West that just made Tywin decide to stay there, go on campaign, get those debts repaid, figured out what was going on, people taking advantage of his father. There's a lot to do. So it's kind of weird. It would, otherwise, that means he went to Catholic Rock, went back to court, and then came back to do all this stuff. So he probably stayed after the funeral, started this campaign, although it is possible he went back and forth, but whatever, that's a small detail. And this is also what led to the reigns of the Tarbacks going extinct. This is the year 261, and this is the reigns of Castamere. We don't need to retell the reigns of Castamere. You know it well. The question here is, what did Joanna Lannister think of it all? Surely she was cool with restoring the strength and pride of House Lannister. She may not have been so cool with how, though. Drowning all those reigns, for example. That's not so certain. Sir Kevin and many of the knights who fought on the Stepstones were given orders by Tywin to go clear out the West, to go, lots of brigands had formed gangs and things like that. Bad lawlessness had become the norm in the West. And Sir Kevin was charged with stopping that. Surely Joanna was cool with that. Who's going to not want the brigands gone except for the brigands? But when Tywin says, let's kill these hostages for not immediately repaying these debts that we gave them loose terms on in the first place. In other words, kind of changing the deal. Tywin wanted to kill people, you know, for this. <laughs> Even though these, these loans were given freely. Would Joanna, how would she feel about this? Would she be with Tywin and like, yeah, those guys need to pay that money back right away? Or would she kind of be more like, well, we don't need to be this aggressive. You know, it's, I'd say this is not certain at all. It's clearly unclear. The Red Lion, that's Roger Rain. He was killed during this Reigns of Casimir incident, but not long before, the prior year, he fought alongside Tywin. In fact, he was in charge of Tywin because he took over the Westerlands armies when Joanna's father was killed. The command of the Westerlands armies fell to this Red Lion, Roger Rain. So how did Joanna feel about that? That's a tough call. It's a little easier to guess how she felt about Ellen Rain. Because Ellen seized Stafford, her brother, and held him hostage as part of this whole back and forth that eventually ended with the Reigns of Castamere. 
Also, Ellen had a long rivalry with Jane Marbrand, which was called the War of the Wounds. And Jane Marbrand is Tywin's mother, so it's pretty clear whose side she's going to take there. And these things tend to fall along family loyalties anyway, so it's not hard to guess that you're, which side Joanna was on throughout all this. But still, Tywin's ruthlessness is noteworthy, and that's what I really wonder about. I'm guessing she saw it coming. You know, Tywin, maybe he, a lot of people maybe thought he was just a big talker. You know, he says, let's, let's, you know, cut these hostages into bits and mail them back to their families. Some people may have just thought that was talk. Joanna would know better. She was close to Tywin. She probably wasn't surprised by this. It doesn't mean she liked it or approved of it. It doesn't mean she didn't either. She may have been, may have been all for it. She may have been like, yeah, drown those people. Do it. You know, I'm, that'll teach them. She may also have been like, that was cruel. That was too much. You know, maybe that was more than you needed to do. All these things are possible. But in any case, I'm guessing Joanna was among the least surprised at how far he was willing to go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is dedicated in part to the glory of our northern champions. Jay Wilson, Winter's King. Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Winter's King. Lady Ire Ardross, Mother of Wolves. Sir Daniel, the Sneaky Russian. And Sir Brian the Return, Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song. Despite what you may have heard, you can play online poker in the U.S. safely and legally. My friends over at ProfessionalRakeback.com have compiled everything there is to know about each and every internet card room, including deposit bonuses, rakeback, tournament specials, and deposit and withdrawal options. Head over to ProfessionalRakeback.com and find the site that's best for you. And now, it's time to move on. The princess and the queen and the king. Jaehaerys II did not live long, only ruled about three years. So in 262, Aerys II ascended the throne. And Joanna was no longer lady-in-waiting to the princess. She was now lady-in-waiting to the queen. And Aerys also got a, gave a promotion to Sir Tywin because he became hand to the king. So Tywin and Joanna both getting, you know, uh, moving up in the world a bit. And then, the following year, they united the two Lannister branches. The World of Ice and Fire In 263 AC, after a year as the king's hand, Sir Tywin married his beautiful young cousin, Joanna Lannister, who had come to King's Landing in 259 AC for the coronation of King Jaehaerys II and remained thereafter as a lady-in-waiting to Princess, later Queen, Rhaella. The bride and groom had known each other since they were children together at Casterly Rock. So that's a lot of positive stuff, right? War heroes taking the reins of the realm. They have talent and youth and some early experience. Things are going their way. Rising in rank together. A happy marriage? Something bad has got to happen, right? <laughs> you are correct if you said yes. Indeed, something bad has to happen. And in this case, there were unwanted liberties. And it didn't even take more than, like, 
a few minutes into the marriage before this happened. A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys 7. The White Knight chose his words with care. Prince Ares, as a youth, he was taken with a certain lady of Casterly Rock, a cousin of Tywin Lannister. When she and Tywin wed, your father drank too much wine at the wedding feast and was heard to say that it was a great pity that the Lord's right to the first night had been abolished. A drunken jape, no more, but Tywin Lannister was not a man to forget such words, or the, the liberties your father took during the bedding. His face reddened. I have said too much, your grace, I... So... Real quick, of course that quote ends because they're interrupted. George loves to do that. He loves to have these, like, really revealing or potentially revealing heart-to-hearts broken up by some sort of urgent distraction or something. It's almost as if he wants us to be suspicious about what would have been said if there hadn't been an interruption. It's like a reverse tell. It's like, huh, he did that interruption thing right before someone was going to say something important. That must mean that something important is really important. Also, can we stop and think for a minute about how weird the Westerosi bedding ceremony is, especially for the woman? A bunch of drunken strangers tear your clothes off and carry you to bed while commenting on your looks? Well, uh, funny enough, Sansa actually looked forward to her bedding until she realized who it was going to be with. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing Tywin would want to participate in either, though, right? Like, he's so kind of stuck up and, you know, it doesn't seem like he'd be cool with that. Like Stannis. <laughs> but Ares was looking forward to it. Clearly, and that had major consequences. Tywin, as proud as he was, seemed far more willing to suffer insults aimed at him than he was willing to suffer such aimed at Joanna. This is really interesting. Of all the insulting and petty things Ares did to Tywin, there were only two times where he got so upset that he tried to resign as Hand. And those two times were Jaime being named the Kingsguard and Ares making extremely rude comments about Joanna's breasts in front of the entire court, making people laugh. But Tywin suffered lots of insults to himself in silence. So, it just tells you a few things. Now that latter event, this laughter about Joanna in front of the court, probably reminded Tywin of this same bedding ceremony that just happened. Because of this so-called unwanted liberties, you can probably guess where Ares' hands went. <laughs> And, of course, it's good that Ares' uh, fingernails weren't really crazy at that point. That would have been really, really gross. But still, I keep saying it, he still wasn't mad by this point. So this wasn't, well, oh, we can excuse this touching of Joanna because he was a madman. No, he was just a guy at this point. He was just a really inappropriate guy, you know, touching someone that he shouldn't do. Like, it's, there's no excuse of madness here. It's just lust. Uh, so he's a lot more like, say, Aegon the Unworthy than whichever Targaryen prince dressed a monkey in his dead son's clothes. Of course, in the long run, Ares turned out to be like both of those with some Magor the Cruel mixed in, but, you know, that's another story. But speaking of, there is an unpleasant angle to kind of return to here, which is that maybe Joanna's opinion on Ares doesn't matter as much as it should. Again, maybe he was the type to force himself on her, as he did during this betting, Unwanted Liberties. If, she, if that did happen at some point, would she have been quiet about it? I think she would have had to be. Because Tywin and Ares still got along at this point. And if Tywin knew that something was going on, would he have still been a friend? I kind of doubt it. He somehow got over this, even though he remembered it. He still worked for Ares. 
Anyway, the important point here is that Ares' behavior was unforgivable. And this was just the beginning because Ares is going to start getting worse and worse and worse. And as his madness grew, so did his Tywin envy. Much is made of Ares and Tywin's relationship in the main series and in the world of Ice and Fire that he hated how effective a ruler Tywin was, that he was intimidated by it. Ares wasn't able to perceive a lot of things because he wasn't very bright. For example, he didn't really perceive these basic reasons why people like Tywin so much more than him. He didn't really get that Tywin was better at managing the realm. He didn't really understand. <laughs> he kind of got the gist, but he didn't truly grasp it because he just wasn't very smart. You know, he, he, he was outshined by everyone, especially Tywin. Tywin outshined everyone, really. It wasn't just that Ares wasn't very good. It's that Tywin was just better than everyone at a lot of things. And so it's not a surprise that anyone was jealous of him. But Ares' jealousy is the problem. And that's really well documented. Here's a really famous example of it. The world of ice and fire. The captain of the Hand's personal guard, a knight named Sir Elin Payne, had been heard boasting it was Lord Tywin who truly ruled the Seven Kingdoms. His grace sent the Kingsguard to arrest the man and had his tongue ripped out with red-hot pincers. So I wonder if, of all the things Ares was jealous of about Tywin, if Joanna wasn't one of the major ones, right? Ares had a very warped view of the world, and it got more warped as time went. This could have been one of the biggest rubs of all. They were all at court together, getting to know each other when they were young, before Ares was king. His marriage with Rhaella was obviously arranged. It didn't really work out very well, right? Ares and Rhaella's marriage wasn't good. The two of them suffered through a huge number of stillbirths, miscarriages, deaths in the cradle... Rael had to suffer Ares himself on top of all that. But if Ares could have chosen his bride, you know, if he would been king before he had gotten married, he could marry who he wanted, he might have picked Joanna. Of course, you know, if Tywin had already married her, that would have been complicated. But I gotta think that's something that mattered to him. Maybe he lamented the fact that he didn't marry her. As he's slipping deeper and deeper into madness while he's lamenting yet another dead child, I can picture him hearing, which he did hear about Jamie and Cersei, born happy and healthy and perfect, etc., and golden. Here's what he said. The world of ice and fire. I appear to have married the wrong woman, his grace was reported to have said, when informed of the happy event. I wonder what Joanna said to Tywin with regards to Ares' jealousy. What was her opinion on it? It was obviously no secret. It was an open secret, you could say. Did she play peacemaker? Did she encourage it? <laughs> Did she laugh? Was she indifferent? Maybe she liked seeing Ares struggle. Maybe she got a kick out of her husband being the object of jealousy from the king. She may have also felt sympathy, though. Since she may have had feelings for him in the past, or even more recently, or may have even had a fling, you can see how a former lover might feel sympathetic, even though he had given them so much reason to hate him. Emotions don't always make sense, after all. Now, this is where we come back to our lack of knowledge as to what Joanna actually looked like. It's unlikely she was plain, as we said, but all we really know is that she had the standard green eyes and golden hair because Jamie sees her in his dream, and he remembers that much. You'd think that if she had black hair, he'd remember that much. But he doesn't recognize her and can't tell if she's 15 or 50. What's funny is she never actually got to age 50, but anyway, he, he, he doesn't know it's her. The point is... Her looks aren't that notable, 
And this just speaks even more to what's memorable about her being her strength of character, what she did in life, not what she looked like. This, again, is what I think was the draw for Ares and Tywin and other people. But there is another major implication here. Let's jump far ahead of where we are right now in the timeline because what we're going to talk about relates very strongly to Tywin and Ares in the, in, as far as the jealousy goes. What we're talking about is the marriage ambitions that Tywin had in regards to having Cersei marry Rhaegar. Remember what happened here. Tywin, he's the richest lord in the land. His heritage is nearly unmatched. He's hand to the king. He presents his incredibly beautiful daughter, who is born from the woman that Ares had a crush on, or a thing with, or whatever. And somehow, she's not good enough. Wow. This is Ares' jealousy in full swing. That's gonna sting, right? Marcellus Wallace from Pulp Fiction would definitely have something to say about this, about how pride can F with you. Tywin being a man of pride, that's probably what was happening here. And I can also see Joanna agreeing with Marcellus Wallace when he said pride only hurts. It never helps. Joanna was caught in the middle of all this. And so much of what we know about the situation is filtered through others. We have maesterly accounts. We have secondhand information from Lannister POV memories. But the maesters weren't contemporaries. Because this maester is Yandel and he's getting his information from elsewhere. It's not Pycelle writing The World of Ice and Fire. And Tyrion's POV, well, we get nothing, basically, because he doesn't remember her. Cersei and Jaime were too young to know much. Cersei hardly thinks about her at all. Jaime's got that one dream and a few other things. So mostly we got to read between the lines. It's another reminder that we know several things regarding her impact, but not much at all regarding her personality. So that's why we keep asking so many different questions, so many different possibilities that don't seem to fit with each other, because there's such a huge range of possibilities. Such as the fact that Ares was not the only dragon whose opinion mattered. As the king was embarrassed by the hand outshining him in the eyes of the realm, so was the queen embarrassed by something to do with the hand's wife outshining her in the eyes of the king. But King Ares did what he wanted. The queen couldn't really stop him, but she could dismiss the distraction. The world of ice and fire. It has been reliably reported, however, that King Ares took unwanted liberties with Lady Joanna's person during her bedding ceremony. To Tywin's displeasure, not long thereafter, Queen Rhaella dismissed Joanna Lannister from her service. No reason for this was ever given, but Lady Joanna departed at once for Casterly Rock and seldom visited King's Landing thereafter. No reason was ever given, it says, but it sounds like one was actually right here. The world of ice and fire. Though she turned a blind eye to most of the king's infidelities, the queen did not approve of his turning my ladies into his whores. Joanna Lannister was not the first lady to be dismissed abruptly from her grace's service, nor was she the last. We can imagine that whatever so-called scurrilous rumors from around the time of 259, they would have returned after this event in 263, right? When these unwanted liberties occurred. Maybe the rumors never died down in the first place. If they did, well, this would have definitely brought them storming back. But there's something else here that's a really kind of odd. This is maybe something we should have put in the meta section, but I think it fits here just as well. Queen Rayella. 
this quote about her turning, about her husband turning her ladies-in-waiting into whores. Then she immediately, the maester immediately refers to Joanna incident. Thus basically saying that it was Ares that made Joanna into one of his whores. World of Ice and Fire was written for Robert Baratheon, married to Cersei. Cersei's father is Tywin. Did, did this maester not realize that this book would contain these things and that they would see it? Wouldn't they be insulted? I mean, Lannister pride is notorious, right? Especially Tywin's. Arguably, Cersei handles these things even less well. Tywin, at least, can be patient about his revenge. Cersei kind of just becomes enraged immediately. You'd think a maester would know better than to include all this talk about Cersei's mother and Tywin's wife, right? But George had this maester write it anyway, despite it would probably put him in danger. But he had him write it. So that's very interesting from a meta perspective. Consider that one. But back to the timeline. Let's look at this again. The dismissal of Joanna apparently happened just after the wedding, and the wedding was 263. Technically, what he said was shortly after the wedding. So maybe it was as far as 264 if the wedding was late in the year. But we're talking about probably a matter of months here at most. Must have been really frustrating for Tywin and probably for Joanna as well. Here they are. They have kind of like a job posting, right? Away from home, yet it's in the same location. So they get to be together even though they're not at home. But now they're not going to be together anymore because of something that's entirely outside of their control. Probably, probably. Again, maybe Joanna was encouraging this whole thing. But we're guessing it was just Ares. In any case, since she was probably not happy to be away from her husband, maybe she wasn't happy to be away from Ares either, but that seems likely enough. Maybe she, she probably was at least like, well, at least I don't have to deal with him anymore. I want to be with my husband, but at least that king is out of my life for now. So they were separated either way. She went back home, and as it says, seldom returned to court. As far as we know, that next time wasn't for around eight years, though she would see Ares again sooner than that. But for a time, she was back on home turf. She was the lioness in her den. Because it's different now. For Lady Joanna at Casterly Rock, I mean. Recall that before, when she first... When she was younger, rather, when she spent a lot of time maybe at feast fires, or even if she was at Casterly Rock, she wasn't married to Tywin yet. She wasn't nearly as big a deal as she would be. She was there, and then she went to court, spent four years at court. Now she's back. She's not just the niece of the Lord of Casterly Rock anymore. She's the wife of the heir to Casterly Rock. She's the future lady of Casterly Rock. And as Tywin's mother was long dead by then, she probably carried even more authority. She was sort of maybe, the de facto Lady of Cashley Rock before having the title officially because, like I said, Tywin's mother was dead. And remember this tidbit from Oberyn. A storm of swords, Tyrion ten. Perhaps, said Tyrion, but my father ruled the seven kingdoms, but was ruled at home by his lady wife, or so my mother always said. Oberyn's mother was again... One of those other ladies-in-waiting. Perhaps one another of the ones that was dismissed later. <laughs> Who knows? Either way, they were friends, so she would know. The Princess of Dorne. So gender notwithstanding, Joanna was probably the Alpha Lion. And then from this time again, which is around 264, until her death in 273. So she was, I would say, top dog, but it's top lion. Especially given that there was no obvious other candidate to take charge of the Rock. I really think it was Joanna. Tywin would be hand this whole time, and past it as well, but he's, so he's at court most of the time. Lord Titos himself, as we said before, he was depressed 
for a long time prior to this about his wife's death, and he was never much of a ruler anyway, right? This is around the time where he was almost killed by lions, right? This is when House Clegane was formed, and he began to put on weight. This is when he got fat. He maybe just was afraid to go outside because of the lions. He was afraid to go hunting. I don't know. Whether that was related or not, he got really overweight, and he began his relationship with the common-born woman that Tywin would eventually force into a walk of shame. That came so much later. Tywin maybe didn't even know much about this woman. Joanna may have told him, but he wouldn't have met her, probably. So that begs the question, what did Joanna think of this woman that was Tytos' lover? Now, Tywin had already wiped out two houses while his father was lord. <laughs> while his father was lord. Showing he was willing to forego governance and key decisions, meaning Tytos was, for, was willing to just let Tywin do his thing. But now, no one's going to mess with House Lannister, right? Even though Tytos is still in charge, they saw what Tywin was capable of. So even though Tytos is in charge, and he's weakling, and Tywin's way off at court, people still got the message. Do not mess with these current lions. Again, this was before he's handed the king. So Tywin has established himself as someone that you don't want to mess with, even before he got all that authority. So it sounds like, Lord Titos was effectively retired. He just got fat and spent time with his lady. So, with Tywin at court, Joanna was probably running pretty much everything. She's the Lady of the Rock by, you know, not officially, but she's going to be eventually because Titos is going to die and Tywin's going to take over and she'll be Lady of Casual. Everyone knows that's coming. So it's a great position for her to be in. It makes you wonder if she didn't want it meaning that she liked being in charge. Running things at the Rock is a lot different than being at court with all that nonsense. It's all that intrigue and jealousy. I mean, maybe she actually liked it, right? Moved to us, sitting here, we're like, yeah, get away from all that. Get away from all those distractions. Get away from the, the intrigue and that court nonsense. But maybe Joanna actually liked that. But I don't think she did. She didn't want to marry her kids to the royal family, right? Even though Tywin did. But maybe that was for a different reason. She may have liked the courtly action. Certainly some do. In any case, she's back at the Rock. But speaking of her kids, Tywin clearly did make some visits back to the Rock because she got pregnant and she gave birth in 266. So Tywin would have had to at least come back home around early 266 or late 265 or something like that because, like I said, in 266... Thence came the Golden Twins. There are some who prefer the theory that Jamie and Cersei are Aerys' kids and not Tyrion. Some prefer both, really. But I guess that most prefer neither. But obviously George R. R. Martin's opinion is the only one that matters. Regardless of whether you fall on the old secret Targaryen theory spectrum, it's hard to miss that the world of ice and fire added fuel to one of those fires while choking off the other. The idea that Joanna seldom returned to court is fulfilled by a known visit in 272. And if she did visit King's Landing before that, it stands to reason that it would be later rather than sooner. Here's what I mean. She was dismissed from court. It wouldn't make a lot of sense for her to come back like a year later, or a year and a half later, when it's the same queen and king there that, that, that got rid of her. That's hard to explain. So there's just no chance for Ares to sleep with Joanna during those times. Ares' own words kind of speak to this. The world of ice and fire. I appear to have married the wrong woman, his grace was reported to have said. 
when informed of the happy event. Nonetheless, he sent each child its weight in gold as a name-day gift, and commanded Tywin to bring them to court when they were old enough to travel. And bring their mother too, for it has been too long since I gazed upon that fair face, he insisted. Yeah, so that, that's no help at all for the J plus A equals J and C theory there. But there is some help for our theory that Ares was jealous of Tywin's marriage over perhaps all else. Maybe. Well, Tywin was there for the birth of the twins. We know that. But it's not clear when he went back to court afterwards. But he did at some point before events drew him back home again. Which was that in the following year, 267, Lord Titos died. He was on the way to visit his mistress, apparently. The same one who's about to do a walk of shame. It's unlikely Joanna liked her again, but maybe she kind of liked that she just kept Titus out of action so she could run things. Hard to make assumptions here, but lots of fun possibilities to examine. I wonder if Joanna was able to arrange for anything this whole time, several years of her sort of being in charge with Lord Titus doing his thing. Maybe she got Lord Titus to do a few things. Titus was said to be very generous in his will to his own sons and his daughter. And given how loose with he was in money in general, maybe he left some things for Stafford and Damon and Joanna's other siblings. He got that, maybe she arranged for that. Maybe she helped make sure her siblings were taken care of. It wouldn't have been hard to convince Titus to do that. The Royal of Ice and Fire says Tywin returned to the West for his father's funeral. So that means he wasn't there when it happened. That's why we knew that he had gone back to court. But of course, Joanna was, almost certainly. And since we don't know her thoughts on Titus, it's hard to judge what she felt. But... She was probably pleased to see her husband in charge, to see him named Lord of Castle Rock. You know, compartmentalized from whatever she thought about Titos. Even with our guess that Joanna was effectively in control before, now that Tywin had full authority, things were definitely going to be different, even though things may have been basically with them in charge before. For example, that walk of shame. Somehow that seems like Tywin's idea, right? But it was Joanna who lived with her... Maybe she's the one who got really upset with her over time and gave Tywin that idea. You never know. Some people even suggest that this is more of a fringe idea, but Tywin had this woman do the walk of shame as a threat to Joanna to, you know, be worried about, you know, hey, don't mess with Ares, so this is what's going to happen to you. I don't believe that theory. I don't. I, I think jo Tywin loved Joanna too much to threaten her like that. But what we know about Tywin's love is all hearsay too. Right? So, can't dismiss that either. In any case, Tywin had a lot to do once he took over. Even with that guess that Joanna had been running things, there'd be things he wanted to change, things he couldn't have changed, even though they were kind of in charge. Tywin now with full authority and Warden of the West, etc. He had all these inherited titles on top of it. Once he left to go home, the most curious thing happened. Court went with him. <laughs> That's right. There were now dragons at the rock. The world of ice and fire. When he returned to the West to attend his father's funeral and set the Westerlands in order, King Ares decided to accompany him. Though his grace left the queen behind in King's Landing, her grace was pregnant with the child who proved to be the stillborn Princess Shaina. He took their eight-year-old son Rhaegar, Prince of Dragonstone, and more than half of the court for the better part of the next year. The Seven Kingdoms were ruled from Lannisport and Casterly Rock, where both the king and his hand were in residence. Okay, so this is weird, right? There's just no detail about what happened during this time. Not a lot of explanations as to what court was like run from Casterly Rock. 
Maybe it generated new rumors about Aries and Joanna or new tension or new incidents. Jamie and Cersei were only a year or so old, so there was no getting, there's no, for them, no getting to know young Rhaegar. And Joanna may not have liked all this happening, right? Like, remember when Robert takes court all the way to Winterfell early on in Game of Thrones, or right away in Game of Thrones? That was a pretty short time, but it still threw everything into disarray. Ned was like, damn his royal hide, you know, all these people coming, we gotta feed everybody, it's, wow, what a burden. Also a great honor, but also a great burden. Tywin... This may have been when he started to see his chance to marry in the royal family. With them coming home with him like that, they would think, boy, they sure do think I'm important. It certainly said that to the realm, right? Their whole realm is here, is seeing this. They're seeing that Tywin and Aerys are still close. You know, there's closeness between the Lannisters and the Targaryens. But there might be a lot more to it, though. Maybe Aerys wanted to be near Joanna again. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps we do get a clue, though. There are, like I said, we got to do a lot of reading between the lines, and there's a good spot for it. Check out what happens just after. The World of Ice and Fire. The court returned to King's Landing in 268 AC. The governance resumed as before, but it was plain to all that the friendship between the king and his hand was fraying. Where previously Ares had sided with Tywin Lannister on most matters of substance, now the two men began to disagree. So it seems like, the implication seems to be that things went really downhill after that visit. Things were going steadily downhill, but it's like they took a major turn for the worse during that time at Casterly Rock. So what did Ares do during that time? Was he just himself? I mean, Ares just being Ares is, is probably enough, right? And his general deterioration into madness, that by itself can explain pretty much everything. But... We'd be silly to think that that's definitely everything. Now, the other thing about this is rumors at court are one thing. Rumors are casually rock are another thing. If things happened at court, there'd be a lot of different people talking about it. And Tywin couldn't do anything. He can't control those whispers. But he can control them a little bit at casually rock, if not a lot. Remember what Ned Stark did regarding Ashara Dane. It's one of the first things we hear is that he confronts Catelyn. Where did you hear that name? And then it's the quote is something like, and that name was never spoken again at Winterfell. I mean, surely people did whisper it a little bit, but the point is Ned was able to shut down those rumors pretty effectively. Tywin and Joanna might have been able to do that if something happened at Cashley Rock via with Ares during this time. Just they couldn't have shut down the rumors at court, and that's why we don't hear anything. That doesn't mean nothing happened, right? Okay. On the other hand, there's no Varys yet. Varys is not on the scene yet, I don't think. We're not exactly sure when Varys came over across the Nero Sea, but we don't think it was yet. So maybe during the time of Casterly Rock, maybe Ares left some kind of spy behind, though. Someone to keep an eye on Tywin and or Joanna. Someone loyal to him. Someone he was bribing. Someone he may have corrupted. Someone he jingled coins at. Or threatened. <laughs> or had his people do that, too. Very, very suspicious. And maybe there was just some minor breach of trust, though. Maybe it was nothing even to do with Joanna and Ares. Maybe it was just something else. Maybe just Ares being Ares again. I can just throw that out there as a generic possibility. Something serious enough, though, to do damage to Ares and Tywin's friendship enough that it was a big deal. The jealousy wasn't fully realized yet at this point. Neither, again, was the insanity. Some of the worst insults that Ares was going to deliver to Tywin had yet to happen. So it probably wasn't that. So something was there, though. And the next four years, it just got so much worse. The pace of abuse 
from Aries to Tywin just kept going up. So going downhill is an underst- is an understatement of what happened in Tywin and Aerys' relationship. But things were still functional. Tywin still did his job. He still continued at court, maybe returning home from time to time. Joanna was probably still running things at the Rock. She was raising Jamie and Cersei. Despite this declining situation, Joanna might have been having a pretty decent time of things. It might have been one of her best stretches of time in life. I mean... Ares did triple taxes back at Lannisport at one point, so she felt that. She probably heard the complaints and maybe had to deal with that. And maybe had to exchange some letters with Tywin, you know, some ravens to figure out how to handle that whole situation. But as far as problems of ruling, of problems in Westeros, as far as the kind of problems that would come later, that's pretty mild. So the worst was still far away. It was coming, though. And so that's where we're going next, because these happy adult years of Joanna, they clearly can't last. A coat of gold, a bed of blood. That's our next section here. Joanna went to court in 272 and brought the twins with her. Ares had been king for 10 years, and there were to be celebrations of that span. Tywin himself, as Hand, played a major role in making sure that the occasion would be special. Sadly, though, this visit marked the beginning of the end for Joanna. Around this time, she became pregnant with Tyrion. As we know already, she did not survive it. Though surely all women of Westeros know the dangers of childbirth, she probably didn't predict that the following year would be her last. But she may have felt some sense of dread anyway, given what Ares was becoming, given what he had done before, and that she'd have to be around him while her husband was there. And then there's Queen Rhaella, who was the one who dismissed her, probably wasn't looking forward to whatever possible embarrassments might happen because she'd, be, she'd fear that they'd happen again, and they did, in fact, happen again. Some will suggest that maybe Joanna got pregnant before the tourney, or gotten pregnant after. It's certainly true that both of these are possible, so I don't think that we're assuming otherwise. But that said, I do think the most likely time for her to get pregnant was at the tournament around this time. This, was, this could be a, uh, several months we're talking about here. Because, here's why. If she had been pregnant, it'd be a perfect excuse to stay home, not have to come to the tournament at all, not have to be around Ares. You know, it's well known that women don't want to travel when they're pregnant. It's just a great excuse to use. And it's not even an excuse. It's a good reason. And the realm in general is very sensitive to that at this time, especially the court, because Rayella had lost, I don't even remember how many children stillbirths she had, but it was a really high number, like six or something. And everyone would be aware of this. In any case, the 10th celebration of Ares' reign was honored by the Great Anniversary Tourney. The World of Ice and Fire At the Great Anniversary Tourney of 272 AC, held to commemorate Ares' 10th year upon the Iron Throne, Joanna Lannister brought her six-year-old twins, Jaime and Cersei, from Casterly Rock to present before the court. The king, very much in his cups, asked her if giving suck to them had ruined your breasts, which were so high and proud. The question greatly amused Lord Tywin's rivals, who were always pleased to see the hands slighted or made mock of, but Lady Joanna was humiliated. Tywin Lannister attempted to return his chain of office the next morning, but the king refused to accept his resignation. 
It's kind of funny that Ares and his son created this tradition of saying really awkward things to women of powerful families who they wanted to sleep with in bold fashion at major tournaments. Yeah, Harrenhal was just Rhaegar following in his father's footsteps. <laughs> it's also funny how their descendants didn't live to carry this tradition on. Hmm, I wonder why. And a man who had a major hand in that, yes, pun intended, hates laughter above all else. The world of ice and fire. Slights and jibes became ever more numerous. Courtiers, hoping for advancement, soon learned that the quickest way to catch the king's eye was by making mock of his solemn, humorous hand. Yet through all this, Tywin Lannister suffered in silence. So, think about all that, and add this to the fact that Tywin himself apparently hosted, meaning paid for, the tourney. This is the thanks Ares gives him. But despite all that, despite the insults before the tournament, despite the insults during, he had never tried to resign until these insults to Joanna. And then, of course, years later when Ares named Jamie to the Kingsguard. He was able to bear the prior indignations, even though he paid for the tournament. <laughs> he paid for it, and they're making fun of him during it. Of his wife. Making fun of his wife. Like, come on. So this, you can see why it was just too much. He can handle it when it's at himself, but he's going to defend his wife. But his resignation was denied. He'd have to continue his hand. That's what the king says. There's not much you can do about that. But Joanna and the twins didn't have to stay. Apparently, once the tourney was over, she could go home. And again, there's the pregnancy excuse. Because by then, she was probably impregnant. Yes, that's right. Another pun. Another bad pun combining pregnant with imp. But perhaps it was just time to go home. Maybe it wasn't really about the pregnancy, but I'm guessing it probably was. Tyrion was born in 273. It's unclear whether it was earlier or late in the year. So yeah, the possibility is that she became pregnant before, after, etc. But again, 272, while at court, I think this is most likely. Again, because Tywin spent most of his time at court. And it's pretty simple, really, if you break this down. Let's say that she's at home, he's at court. They haven't seen each other in a while. And again, court's the only time we can be sure that they were together. Think about this. They haven't been together in a few years or, or a few months, whatever. Of course they're going to want to sleep together if they haven't seen each other in a few months. Lions need loving too. Since Tywin was unable to resign, he probably didn't go back to the rock right away with her when she left. So he probably went later, like around the time when she was due. Because she wa he was there for her first delivery, so he was probably going to be there for the second. And there was also the matter of this visit that was coming. The Princess of Dorne, Joanna's old friend, was apparently coming to visit Casterly Rock. Tywin almost certainly knew about this, too. It wasn't likely to be a visit, a major visit like that that he didn't know of. So as we said, it seems more likely that she became pregnant while at court than back at home because there's just no guarantee Tywin was even there. So that doesn't mean it was Ares that got her pregnant. It just means it might have been. We're still... Far from Ares being at his worst. He hasn't started burning people yet. He isn't fully insane. Though, again, he was farther along than he was the last time they saw each other. So it's pretty unlikely she had interest in an affair, despite the fact that he wasn't all, you know, as bad as he would be. But mm, there's a chance. So whatever happened, if anything happened, it would probably be all about Ares pushing it. She might have been coerced. And if so, well, there's a lot of ways that could have broken down. 
But before the tourney is mentioned in the world of ice and fire, we have this, and this is why I'm worried about the coercion. The world of ice and fire. By this time, King Ares had become aware of the widespread belief that he himself was but a hollow figurehead, and Tywin Lannister the true master of the Seven Kingdoms. These sentiments greatly angered the king, and his grace became determined to disprove them and to humble his over-mighty servant and put him back in his place. Okay, so what are some ways that Ares would put Tywin back in his place? He's not a clever guy. He wanted to shame Tywin. He's not going to have some creative, you know, multi-step process to make this happen. He thinks in simple terms... And he was already attracted to Joanna. Put two and two together. You know, it doesn't mean this is what happened, but it, one of the, if he's coming up with ideas, this is, seems like a really obvious one to, to come to mind for someone like Ares, who's shallow and, you know, not a deep thinker. And if Tywin ever learned of this, some think that she kept quiet. Like, she wouldn't have told Tywin. Because if she had told Tywin, wouldn't he have come to get revenge? And she knows him better than anyone, so she would know what his reaction would be. So she's like, okay, I can't tell him, even though it's horrible what happened to me. I can't tell him because he might just lose it and try to go to war, and we'd lose, and that and our kids are going to die. So she would just have to keep quiet and hope that if Ares didn't get her, did get her pregnant, that this kid isn't born with Lannister features. Or they was born with Lannister features. She'd have to hope for Lannister features. So speaking of... I guess it was lucky that there were no purple eyes on Tyrion. Now, is that a stretch? It's like, oh, come on. That's not proof of anything. Well, Lyanna had, you would probably would have had to hope for the same thing, you know, at the last minute anyway. And by the same token, Lyanna didn't want Robert to know who Jon was because she was afraid of retribution. This is the same thinking that maybe Joanna had with regards to Tywin and suspecting that some child she gave birth wasn't his. Would he take revenge? Would he have Tyrion killed? Well, as to revenge, he did get revenge. It was just the type that was served cold. Sir Gregor and Sir Amory saw to that. They wiped out those descendants. As to having Tyrion killed, I just disagree with that idea. I don't think we can assume that Tywin would have Tyrion killed, even if he strongly suspected that Ares was Tyrion's father. Tywin's a man who cannot bear to be laughed at. He suffered in silence through all those insults when he had to. What do you think he would prefer? To suffer in silence, which he's shown an ability to do, or have the entire realm know that Joanna slept with Ares? Which would he prefer? Between the rock and the hard place? Between that casually rock and a hard place? I think he would prefer to suffer in silence rather than have the entire realm laugh at him. Laughter is what he hated most. He hated it even more than anything else. So, I do not think that we can assume he would do something about it right away. And there is a major clue that he did suspect Tyrion as not being his son. A storm of swords, Tyrion won. You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature, full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colours, since I cannot prove that you are not mine. To teach me humility, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle about wearing that proud lion that was my father's sigil and his father's before him. 
He uses the word prove. Proof is, in fact, the key word here, too. How would he know? How would he know? How would Tywin know who the child belongs to? Again, we talked about why he, after being separated from his wife, she comes to court. And of course, they're going to sleep together. They haven't seen each other in a few months. So no one's exactly suggesting that Joanna just got to court and immediately slept with Ares. What, what, if she slept with him at all, it would have been, you know, a little later. And then we're looking at her having slept with both of them. How is she going to know which kid this belongs to as far as who the father is, right? And this also explains why Joanna wouldn't want to use moon tea necessarily. It, you know, maybe she did, but if she, I'm guessing she didn't, and this explains why. Because how does she know who the kid belongs to? She might be accidentally aborting a trueborn Lannister. I just, in a realm where kinslaying and stuff is really taken seriously, you can't dismiss the idea that she would take the chance because she would be afraid of, you know, retribution from the gods. And, in, and again, unless Tyrion is born with obvious Targaryen features, there would be no way to tell. And the way Tyrion was born, well, that just confuses things even more. He looks part Lannister and something else. Some part, ambig part ambiguous or just part the way he came out. We don't know. Tywin could be 100% certain that Aerys slept with Joanna, like, because she told him. And still, he wouldn't know whose kid that is. He might still be killing his own kid if he killed Tyrion. So I reject all arguments that Tywin would have killed Tyrion if he knew, because no, he would not. He, and there's no way for him to know for sure. Tywin also used the line, you are my son, when naming Tyrion acting hand. But he used the, you're not my son, line with Jaime also. And he did use the, you're my son, with Jaime. He used both of them. It's just a metaphor. It's an insult. The former example is far more specific, though, because he says men's laws can't prove blah, blah, blah. That... The you're not my son thing to Jamie didn't, wasn't accompanied by some sort of like, well, here's why. <laughs> it was just a, you're going to be in the Kingsguard. You're not going to continue our line. Fine. Be that way. I'm disowning you. It was kind of, it was that thing, right? But George wrote it that way on purpose to kind of confuse the issue. Some people wonder why Tyrion has never thought about it himself. If something else is going on, why didn't Tyrion question what his father said to him at that moment? He's never considered the idea that Tyr the Tywin isn't his father, except there's this one little note. A dance with the dragons, Tyrion too. When he was still a lonely child in the depths of Casterly Rock, he oft rode dragons through the nights, pretending he was some lost Targaryen princeling or a Valyrian dragonlord soaring high over field and mountains. And to me, that reminds me of John yelling, I'm the Lord of Winterfell as a boy when he's playing with Rob. And well, hey, that's looking like it could be true as well. We'll see. So George could be setting us up with this stuff about Tyrion's father. There's no gotcha pieces of evidence anywhere. None of this is like, oh, that's definitely proof. No, nothing. Not even Danny and John and Tyrion's mothers all dying while giving birth to them. That's not proof. It's just something that makes you go, hmm. Me at least, anyway. I go, hmm, when I see that. At the same time, though, Almost anything you can point to with regards to Tyrion as saying, oh, this proves he has Targaryen blood. No. Almost all of those things is actually more likely to be evidence for him riding a dragon. <clears throat> Makoro points out that this vision of Tyrion surrounded by dragons and do, having things to do with dragons, he doesn't see him as one of them, does he? No. He's not one of them. He's amidst all these dragons. So, I think the riding a dragon, Tyrion riding a dragon has more support than him being one. But... We can't dismiss it. 
Some people actually just hate this idea in general. think it's a total red herring, which I think there's a reasonable argument for it being a red herring. Literally, in A Dance with Dragons, George inserted red herrings about John's parentage. He put in the story of when Davos was at the fingers, and there's the person that says that Ned impregnated a fishwife with Jon Snow. So, well, maybe that's the real story, right? No, I don't think so. It's almost certainly Lyanna and Rhaegar. But even if it's not, one of those stories is false, right? There is a red herring. One of those two is. We're pretty sure no, we know which one it is. But either way, it shows that George is willing to throw red herrings in there. However, that's just one thing. There's lots of evidence for Tyrion. Either way, again, this is not a Tyrion Targaryen episode, even though we have to talk about it because it's just so wrapped up. No matter the father of her third child, Joanna had marriage plans for those first two children. And again, we must take note, she didn't want Cersei to marry Rhaegar. She apparently had decided on her friend, the Princess of Dorne, who had also apparently already agreed. A storm of swords, Tyrion ten. Ilya and I were older, to be sure. Your brother and sister could not have been more than eight or nine. Still, a difference of five or six years is little enough. And there was an empty cabin on our ship. A very nice cabin, such as might be kept for a person of high birth. As if it were intended that we take someone back to Sunspear. A young page, perhaps. Or a companion for Ilya. Your lady mother meant to betroth Jamie to my sister, or Cersei to me. Perhaps both. If not both, I wonder which. Given the opposition on Cersei slash Rhaegar, I would lean towards her, meaning I would think that if either of the two were going to go back to Dorne, it would have been Cersei, meaning that Cersei was set to marry Oberyn as a child, which is funny because as an adult, Tywin suggests that Cersei marries Oberyn in A Storm of Swords. Now, we know that marriage alliances are of prime importance, especially to the Great Houses, and we also know that actions speak louder than words. So the apparent fact that Joanna overruled Tywin on the issue of marriages is thus a really, probably the best example of just how strong a person she was and how much power she had in that marriage. Tywin famously unnerved a much older man by just staring at him and not blinking and, and holding that gaze. Maybe Joanna had a stare too. Though Cersei suggests to Sansa that Lady Joanna called tears the woman's weapon. So maybe she was that on Lord Tywin. Now one wonders why Joanna was against a marriage to the royal family, but if you think about it for a minute, it makes a lot of sense. First of all, she knew Ares pretty well. It may have just been that simple. Like, I don't want my kids anywhere near him. And also with Rayella, you know, maybe she and Rayella had a falling out because of what happened with Ares and didn't want anything to do with her either, didn't want her kids around them. I don't know. But there's a lot of obvious possibilities and regardless, though, Tywin only had his way on that front after Joanna passed. He only broached the matter with Ares after she died. He mourned her death, but apparently not her wishes on this. Maybe they argued about it while she was alive. It's entirely possible. If they did, she seemed to have come out ahead. It may not have been so much that she was opposed to the idea of Cersei marrying Rhaegar. Maybe she didn't care about them going to court. Maybe she liked the idea of them rising as a family to even greater heights. Maybe there's just a much simpler reason. And that she knew Ares wouldn't do it. She foresaw that Ares would humiliatingly reject the proposal. Honestly, if you really think about it, it's obvious that this would happen. Ares was constantly insulting him. Constantly putting him down. Talking about he wanted to put him in his place. You think he might marry his son to your daughter after all that? 
He wants to put you in his place. He's not going to raise you higher, right? Tywin was blind about this, just like he was about his kids, I think. It's on that level. But Joanna wasn't, I don't think, because it's pretty difficult to guess that someone's going to be blind about something so obvious. You don't just predict this really obvious thing. I bet she didn't realize. The fact that Tywin didn't realize it is outstanding by itself. So we're not going to presume that anyone else felt that way. But it's very interesting that Tywin, such an intelligent man, just had this really huge blind spot. And like I said, he, <laughs> he had this other big blind spot about this. A storm of swords, Jamie three. He could never bear to be long apart from his twin. Even as children, they would creep into each other's beds and sleep with their arms entwined, even in the womb. Long before his sister's flowering, or the advent of his own manhood, they had seen mares and stallions in the fields and dogs and bitches in the kennels and played at doing the same. Once their mother's maid had caught them at it. He did not recall just what they had been doing, but whatever it was had horrified Lady Joanna. She'd sent the maid away, moved Jamie's bedchamber to the other side of Casterly Rock, set a guard outside Circe's, and told them that they must never do that again or she would have no choice but to tell their lord father. They need not have feared, though. It was not long after that she died birthing Tyrion. Jamie barely remembered what his mother had looked like. That last line, though, it sets up his dream-slash-vision of her the book after, reminding us that even her looks are a mystery, that same one. Tywin is dead now, so is Kevin. So who is there? Who knows her that's still alive? Barristan. That's a good call. Barristan has already made comments to Danny on the Joanna Aries relationship in the past. So, taking that a step further, maybe he's going to have a conversation with Tyrion. Tyrion is on Team Danny, sort of, at this point. It's looking like that, especially if he becomes a dragon rider. Maybe he has a chat with Barristan about his mother. That's somebody that could have some information, some very tight information. Remember what I said about how the Kingsguard have access to information that others don't because they're standing guard if there was an affair Arius still had to be in presence of his Kingsguard he's not going to go off by himself and just escape the Kingsguard the Kingsguard are like where is Arius right now <laughs> why are we guarding the king where is he after all the blame Tywin put on Tyrion for Joanna's death maybe Tyrion wouldn't wouldn't want to dwell on it. maybe he doesn't want to talk to Paracin about it but Regardless of that, the question of his parentage, he can't avoid that, even though his mother died so long ago. Good thing they do name days and not birthdays, because Tyrion's isn't really a day to celebrate, for obvious reasons. Especially for Tywin, who was never said to smile. Though every once in a while, he would threaten to do so. And regarding Lady Joanna... The world of ice and fire. Though Tywin Lannister was not a man given to public display... It is said that his love for his lady wife was deep and long-abiding. Only Lady Joanna truly knows the man beneath the armour. Grand Maester Pycelle wrote the Citadel, and all his smiles belong to her and her alone. I do avow that I have even observed her make him laugh, not once, but upon three separate occasions. It makes me wonder. If this was the one time in his life that Lord Tywin Lannister of Casterly Rock, Warden of the West, Shield of Lannisport, and Hand of the King, was given to public display, and if he threatened 
to cry. Though parents do sometimes discuss names ahead of time, Jana didn't choose Tyrion's name. That was Tywin, according to the SSM collection. Ty Tyrion doesn't have a great history as a name among the Lannisters, so it was kind of telling choice by Tywin there. So I don't think Joanna would have chosen that name if she had lived to be a part of that. So through all that, I said at the beginning that one of the things we would do was look at Tywin before and after. And I don't see a big difference. I really don't. He was cruel before, he was cruel after. He was proud before, he was proud after. Maybe it's just that we don't have enough on what he was like before. Because we don't have a lot of that. We don't have, like, memories of them together through someone else's point of view. We certainly don't have Tywin's point of view. So maybe it's just that we don't have enough information. Or maybe it's just that Joanna was a lot like him. Maybe she encouraged him at his worst. Maybe some of the things he did were his, not just his idea, they were her idea. It's kind of hard to think about that way, because Joanna's popular in the fandom, and it's hard to think of her as like Tywin. But she was married to him, and she was a part of him, and she made him a better person, according to what we hear. I don't know. It's very complicated. I definitely can say one thing, though. One thing that I think is really true, and I'm very confident in it, is that we will learn more about her. A lot of what we know is recent. The World of Ice and Fire and A Dance with Dragons contains a lot of this stuff. Before that, we learned very little. We learned that she died in childbirth. We learned that she was close to Tywin. We learned that, Joanna, that Jamie and Cersei don't remember her very well. But that's really about it. Almost everything else we learned, all the stuff about the timeline, all the stuff about when they were together, all the stuff about Ares having an interest in her at all, is all starting in A Dance with Dragons and then continued in The World of Ice and Fire. It's really peculiar that George is adding this stuff at this late date. It's not something that's been set up for a long time, except that it was set up in very early in Game of Thrones with that line that we gave at the beginning in John 1, his first conversation ever with Tyrion. So, what is George telling us in those early books, and what is he telling us now? Well, we're going to find out. The Tyrion Targaryen question is not going to linger by the end of the series. He could leave it ambiguous. George might decide to never reveal that truth. But I think we're going to learn more. We're going to have more evidence one way or another. And I'm very sure we're going to learn more about Joanna. He didn't just start bringing her back, talking about her, to leave it at that. We're going to have more. I look forward to it. I hope you do too. And that's all for today. Thanks, everybody. Valor Morgulis. I got help for writing this episode from Rainy Targaryen of the Westeros.org forums and Nina Friel, who is Good Queen Alley on Tumblr. Our video intro and the maps that you see in our backdrop were by Michael Klarfeld. You can find him at claridox.de. That's like paradox, but with a K-L instead of a P. Guest voices for this episode were Martin Lewis, a.k.a. The Reader, who you can find at Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook, and Mikal Schick of Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast and Hypable.com. Shea was behind the camera today and did all the video editing. Yoke Boy did the audio editing. Thanks to Joey Townsend for the theme music and Jesse Koal for the outro cover theme. There's a lot more that could be said about Tyrion and his parentage, but as I said at the beginning, I didn't want to take up too much time of it because I already knew it would take up quite a bit. <laughs> we'll have the opportunity to discuss other aspects to that theory at another time, most likely during a future Q&A session. The reason that we have Q&A sessions in the first place and this episode is thanks to our monthly patrons who have pledged to keep this show going. Join me in thanking the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, 
Cabeth Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos is Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea and Grand Cardinal of the Temple of Yogg-Sapa. He's dispatched two companies of crossbowmen to the wall to watch for the king beyond the wall, and while they watch, he has prepared an expedition to seek him out and deliver one final offer of friendship. The five stalwart members of our small council are Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships. Our other Lord and Lady supporters include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bells, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort and Traveling to Distant Lands. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, is Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and Holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods, our roots run deep. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is sworn to Alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zissamanthers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. Lord Imriel is of House Jordane, and Brian the Defender, Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. We have King's Justice Sir Droy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. The other six white cloaks are Sir Andrew the Dragon Seed Prophet, longest tenured white sword, Sir Dolores D, Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, Elia of New York, Willa Crosbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, and Sir Brian Rivers, the Bastard of the Riverlands. The history of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. And First Steward Jacques Webster, the Bard of Castle Black. We'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, why not give us a rating and or review on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Google Play, whichever you use. It helps get more attention for the show, and it only takes you less than 30 seconds. Until next time, I'm Aziz.